Would you stand, please, as Aaron comes this morning to read our scripture? In the seventeenth year of Pekah, son of Remaliah, Ahaz, son of Jotham, king of Judah, began to reign. Ahaz was twenty years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem sixteen years. Unlike David, his father, he did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord his God. He followed the ways of the kings of Israel and even sacrificed his son in the fire, engaging in the detestable practices of the nations the Lord had driven out before the Israelites. He offered sacrifices and burned incense at the high places, on the hilltops and under every spreading tree. This is the word of the Lord from 2 Kings 16, 1-4. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Since we began this series, even a little bit before we began this series, I have begun the practice of each week inviting several of our other ministers to join me, and, and we talk over the text, we talk over the passage for Sunday. They've become our teaching team, and they have been such a wonderful support to me just to hear the insights that they are seeing and that the Lord is giving them as they read through the passage. And, and every week, though I don't always quote them or give them credit, uh, those ministers have contributed to things that I have felt led to share. And I'm so thankful for that group. And uh, we've really enjoyed those discussions and, and the things that the Lord shares with us during that time. But I'm going to give credit where credit is due for the opening today, and that's to Jesse Johnston. Jesse mentioned this thought a couple weeks ago, and it and it really resonated with me, and I thought it, as we talk about another very disappointing, more than disappointing, evil king who was supposed to be bearing the name of the Lord, this is a, a good reminder, and, and a place for us to start today is at the end. Where is all of this headed? Well, right now we're in the midst of a divided kingdom. We have the northern kingdom of Israel, we have the southern kingdom of Judah, and each one has their own king. The kings in Judah are from the bloodline of David. The kings in the north came from a different group. They've passed on, some through the bloodline, some through other means. But in every single case, those kings of the north have been evil. They've done what is evil in the eyes of the Lord. They have not been faithful to the Lord their God who brought them into the land of Israel. For the most part, the kings in the south have not been good either, though there have been some bright spots along the way. But, but overall, it's been a journey of, of disappointment. And when we fast forward to the end, it does not end well for either one of these two parts of the kingdom. The northern part, Israel, are going to be invaded and taken captive by the Assyrians. They are no longer going to be in control of their own land. They are no longer going to be able to do what they want to do in the place in which they live. And then not long after that, the southern kingdom of Judah, where the bloodline of David has been on the throne, they too are going to face captivity and exile by the Babylonians. And the temple of the Lord that we saw built during the days of Solomon, really what was the high point of that period, the first genealogies of the kings, the temple of the Lord is going to be destroyed, broken down to the ground, rubble, and no longer will the people in Israel or Judah be able to worship the Lord their God. Instead, they will be completely in the hands of 
their enemies who worship false gods and idols, and they will endure this for decade upon decade upon decade. If we start at the end and, and look back, and we ask the question, so how did they get there? How did the northern kingdom end up, northern kingdom end up in the hands of Assyria? How did the southern kingdom end up in the hands of Babylon? Well, there are, there are lots of points along the way where you can see where this is headed and where you can see that, that God is trying to get their attention. He's speaking to the kings, but he's also speaking to the people. He's sending them prophets. He's allowing them at times to face the consequences that they are bringing on themselves. He is using time and again, method after method, to try to wake them up. But his people and his leaders ultimately refuse to listen. They stay asleep. They continue to worship the, the, the most pervasive idol of all, the idol of self. And because of that, the ending to all of this is dark. And it's terrible. And it's something that we even struggle with seeing. Why, why would God allow this? How could God let this be the end of the story? If we could start at the end and look back, not just where we are right now as, as a culture, as a people, maybe even as a nation, if we could start and, and, and say where we are right now, let's look back. There have been some points along the way that we should have listened, that the church should have been paying attention, that the church should have said, nope, we're not okay with that. We are not going to go along with that, but, but we haven't. And if we were able to fast forward to the end, think about where we are right now. If God has been trying to get our attention, if God has been trying to wake up his church, and we've not yet woken up, we've not yet allowed our attention to be got, what else is it going to take? I don't want to know what else it might take to wake us up, to mobilize us to action. The story of Ahaz here in 2 Kings it is the new low point in the history and the story of Israel and the kings. We, we finished last week with little Joash. You remember at the end of the story of Ahaziah and Athaliah, Joash becomes king at seven years old. And for most of his life, Joash does what is right in the eyes of the Lord. But when Jehoiada, who was the priest we talked about last week, who was like a foster father to Joash, when Jehoiada dies, all of a sudden Joash stops paying attention. The people begin worshiping idols again. They begin rebuilding the altars to Baal and Asherah that were torn down. And Joash did not finish strong. And the people of Israel, just like the people of Judah, both kingdoms were now worshiping idols again. And so we go on for a few chapters from where we were last week, and and, and the kings of Israel and Judah are mentioned, most of them not with much description. We have to go to the, the book of Second Chronicles in a lot of cases to get the fuller story of what's happening with the kings of Judah because Second Kings just doesn't give us a lot of details. But on down the line, we hear more about these northern kings of Israel. They continue to worship Baal and Asherah, one after another, Jehoahaz, Jehoash, Jeroboam II, Zechariah, Shalom, Menahem, 
Pekahiah, and then Pekah, whose name we heard in our text this morning. Every single one of them, kings of the northern kingdom, they do evil in the eyes of the Lord. There were also a few kings between Joash and Ahaz. Amaziah was somewhat good. Uzziah, we might say, was mostly good. Jotham, we might say, was also mostly good. But here again, we come to the low point. In the, in the nation of Israel, the split kingdom, the southern part of Judah, this is the new low, and Ahaz is the one on the throne. So we kind of, I've tried to give you just a little glimpse to keep us along the timeline. We're going to get to Hosea here in a couple of weeks. He is the last king of the northern kingdom. But, but the, the southern kingdom stands just a little bit longer after Assyria comes in. And so Ahaz and Hosea are contemporaries of one another. And our text began with giving us yet another example of a king who resists God. In the 17th year of Pekah, the son of Remaliah, Ahaz became the king. He was 20 years old. He reigned in Jerusalem for 16 years. And unlike David, his father, he did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord. Now, we discussed this. The ministers discussed it. We discussed it a little bit on Wednesday night. Sometimes it feels funny to always compare these kings to David because we know, we read, we, we spent three weeks on David's story. David did not always do what was right in the eyes of the Lord. Why is David continually held up as the example when he too was so flawed and was capable of doing so much evil i think it's because and we see this not just in kings and chronicles but even more so in the books of psalms that david did in fact have a heart that was after the heart of god david was willing to admit when he was wrong david was willing to not only say i'm wrong but to repent of his wrongdoing, to turn away from it, and to turn back to God, and to make God's ways and God's purposes above any other desire that he had in his heart. David wasn't perfect. No king is perfect. No leader is perfect. No person is perfect. But it was his heart that set the tone and the example that was to be followed. Ahaz did not follow in the ways of David. He did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord. Instead, and not since Jehoram, have we heard this statement made, comparing a, a king of Judah to having the heart of the kings of Israel, the northern kingdom. But instead, that's what Ahaz did. He followed the ways of the kings of Israel. And read this. He even sacrificed his own son in a fire. This is, again, the new low for the kingdom of Judah. As, in, as, as he engaged Ahaz in the, the practices of the nations that the Lord had driven out before them, he sacrificed his own son. And if you read 2 Chronicles, it says not only son, but his own children into a fire to appease, to please these false gods of the nations that the Lord had driven out. Again, not for, for generations have we heard a king of Judah spoken of in this way. In fact, Second Chronicles gives us more detail, not only that it was, it was not just one son, but it was his children. We're also told that he sacrificed them in the valley of Hinnom. 
And Hinnom is, is a well-known place in the Hebrew Scriptures. It's on the southern slopes of the city of Jerusalem. It's from the word Hinnom, this place where sacrifices were offered, human sacrifices, children thrown into the fire to please gods like Molech and Baal. It's from the word Hinnom that we get the word Gehenna. And we translate the word Gehenna in English as hell. Ahaz was literally willing to sacrifice his own children in a place called hell on earth to please and appease the gods of the nations that the Lord had driven out. And God had warned his people time and again, like in Leviticus 18, do not give any of your children to be sacrificed to Molech, the kind of God that would call for this kind of sacrifice. You must not profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. Yet this is exactly what Ahaz did, not just with a child, but with his own children. And you look at these people and you say, how much further can it go before someone will speak up? How much more evil can be done and can be allowed before the people who claim to be God's people will stand up and, and do something about it? We like to call ourselves as evangelical Christians and Baptists. We like to call ourselves pro-life. We know that in our own culture, far too many people are more than willing to sacrifice unborn children for their own selfish desires. We know that's true. But that's not the only area where, where being pro-life means we need to pay attention. We need to listen. We need to be willing to speak that which God would say is his priorities. What does it mean for a human being to be made in the image of God? That's not just true about an unborn child, but it's true about any human life, no matter their age, no matter their ethnicity, no matter their socio-political stance or standing, no matter what decisions they make. There's language being used right now in this culture. We should sacrifice the old and the vulnerable for the young and healthy. Is that pro-life? Is that really what, what we believe is right? How much further can things go before God's people will say, you know, no, no we will not stand for that. But we will say that is profaning the name of the Lord our God and the image that he has created in human beings. And we will not be like those evil voices around us who would pull us away from what God's word clearly says. Ahaz is an example of this. He, he refused to obey God. He offered sacrifices, burned incense in every part of Judah. He sacrificed his own children. All of this in the land where God made his covenants with his people. And the people of Israel followed right along with him. The people of Judah also offered sacrifices. Incense was burned at the high places, on the hilltops, and under every spreading tree. And in the next part, Ahaz ends up being stuck between two very hard choices. He either has to submit to the, the armies that are, are threatening to invade him, or he has to make an alliance with the big kid on the block, the strongest empire at the time, Assyria. And Ahaz is convinced that those are his only two choices. Now, I believe we'll see that he had a third choice. 
we, we often are told that there, there's all, only always these binary choices. If you don't support us, then you're with them. If, if you don't care about this, then that means you care about that. But, but we know as, as the people of God, it's not always that simple. And, and the binary cho- choices that are given to us from people, that are giving, given to us from, from parties, that are given to us from those who have an agenda, those aren't always the, the only choices that are out there. Ahaz is given an option. He's given an opportunity. You don't have to listen to Aram. You don't have to listen to the northern kingdom. You don't have to make an alliance with Assyria. The third choice is you can turn to God, give your heart back to him, confess what you've done wrong, repent of it, turn and go the other direction, and if that happens, God will be faithful to you. But instead, Ahaz continues to resist. And his resistance turns to outright rejection. As we think about this next part of the story, I want to ask you this question. I I laugh because my answer to this question is not always great. What comes out of you when you're under pressure? Ahaz is, is, is feeling the pressure. This moment comes when again he has to decide do i do i give in to the invading armies or do i make an alliance with the big kid on the block what comes out of you when you're under pressure i read this from from a pastor this week he said in the course of any year i feel under pressure at least 70 percent of the time looming deadlines tricky pastoral issues key strategic meetings And I added to his list unexpected things that come up, family issues, trying to stay healthy and be productive at the same time. I can relate to that. But pastors aren't the only one who feel this way. I think all of us at time, we we feel like we are under such a tremendous amount of pressure. And a great deal of that comes from the pressure that we put on ourselves. And what comes out of you when you're under pressure? What comes out of Ahaz is not good. And God sees that coming. So again, looking at our timeline, not only do we see the kings here, but we see the prophets. And Ahaz, what an incredible time to be alive. Ahaz was alive and king when Isaiah, the Isaiah, was prophesying. And we have a rare glimpse into Isaiah and a specific king that he speaks to in Isaiah chapter 7. When God sent Isaiah to Ahaz, it's at this moment where he is, he is feeling that pressure. Do I give in to my enemies? Do I make an alliance with Assyria? And God says through Isaiah, no, Ahaz, there's a third choice. Look at this passage, Isaiah 7, starting in verse 10. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, again, our king we're looking at today. Ask the Lord your God for a sign whether in the deepest depths or in the highest heights. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, I will not put the Lord to the test. Now now pause here for just a minute, it's easy to miss, but Ahaz is quoting scripture back at God. He is misusing scripture, trying to use it for his own agenda to excuse his disobedience and his unwillingness to listen to God through the prophet Isaiah. Then Isaiah said, Hear now, you house of David. Is it not enough to try the patience of humans? 
will you try the patience of God also? And guess what comes next in this passage? It's going to sound familiar. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. It is to Ahaz, the low point at this point in Judah's story, the king Ahaz, that the prophecy that we speak out loud and sing every single Christmas, every single Advent season is given. Ahaz is not only given the promise that God will be with him if he will only turn his heart and the hearts of his people back, but that God is going to send a Savior, the ultimate Savior, who's going to make everything wrong right. Doesn't it seem strange that the, the prophecy about Christ that we quote so often would be given in this moment to this king? God gave him this promise the Lord is going to give you a deliverer. He's, he's going to bring to your house a, a father for you, a savior for you, like no one you've ever imagined before. But even with the promise of a savior, Ahaz rejected God. Rather than listening to Isaiah, rather than turning to God, he intentionally ignored the word. And instead, he set up altars, to worship the false gods of those nations who were his enemies right there in Judah. He decided that his best choice was to make that alliance with Assyria, and so he took silver and gold from God's temple and brought it to the king of Assyria as a tribute, saying to him, I am your servant and vassal. Come up and save me. He's given the promise of a savior, the savior, and instead he says to the king of Assyria, you be my savior. You come and save me. Why do we so often dig the hole deeper when we find ourselves in a situation of, of consequences that we've brought on ourselves? Ahaz is, is digging the hole deeper, and look what he does next. This is from Chronicles. In his time of trouble... King Ahaz became even more unfaithful to the Lord. He offered sacrifices to the gods of Damascus who had defeated him. For he thought, since the gods of the kings of Aram have helped them, I will sacrifice to them so that they will help me. But they were his downfall and the downfall of all of Israel. Ahaz essentially at this point is doing as we say, he's throwing spaghetti noodles against the wall to see what sticks. He is willing to try anything else but turning his heart back to God. And instead of listening to the one true God and turning it all over to him, as often happens when we give ourselves over to idols, his resistance of God turns to outright rejection, which then leads to attempts to replace God altogether with people, with things, that cannot satisfy. When we think about our, our own culture, many of our, our common American cultural ideas, attitudes, and behaviors are fertile ground for idol production. That they, they easily become idols with which we replace our hearts 
devotion and affection to God. Within our our culture, those idols make their way into the church as well. Personal idols like greed, power, and sex. Intellectual idols based on ideologies of the political right or left. Philosophies, value systems. Cultural idols like economic prosperity. Worshipping our celebrities. Putting all our trust in technology or our might as a nation. Christianity and Americanism often come in the same cultural packaging. And when that happens, we, we too, as God's people, become very materialistic. Our churches can become very consumer-driven. We value profits over people. The desire to have what we want when we want it rules the day, and yet what we want never seems to be enough. And so we, too face that temptation to keep building bigger and bigger barns to store up things that make us rich in possessions but as jesus said poor towards god we fall into these same traps our culture the times in which we're living they they create fertile ground for idol production but as i said in the beginning the greatest idol of all is the idol of self And here's what what I see. Ahaz basically decides, you know, God's warned me about the repercussions that are coming, and he's warned me that the consequences of those things are not only going to hurt me, but they're going to hurt the people I love and the people that I've been called to lead. And Ahaz still says, you know, well, at least I'll live well, and at least I'll die happy. And after I'm gone, all of this can just be somebody else's problem. The idol of self. Ahaz replaces God. Look at what he does. In, he, he makes this altar. He begins worshiping the gods of Damascus, as we read in, in 2 Kings 16. And then, in 2 Chronicles 28, again, the, more of the story. He gathered together all of the furnishings of the temple of God. This isn't just like the curtains and the decor But these are the things that God had commanded would be installed as holy items used for worship in his temple. Ahaz took all of those things out and he cut them into pieces and then he shut the doors of the Lord's temple and instead set up altars at every street corner in Jerusalem and in every town in Judah he built high places to burn sacrifices to other gods and in doing so he aroused the anger of the Lord the God of his ancestors. He didn't just allow idols to be worshipped. He didn't just pray to the gods of Damascus and the gods of the nations himself. He closed the temple and forbade anybody from going in. He defiled it. He despoiled it. And he traded all that that was supposed to be right and good in worshipping God in the temple in Judah for worshiping these false gods and these idols and he set up those altars in every single town and the people went right along with him when i look at this and i think all of these things so clearly were leading to his downfall and the downfall of those he loved and yet he did nothing which leads to a very very hard but a very fair question What in your life right now, what in my life right now might be leading to your downfall? 
and to the downfall of those you love? What, what might do damage to the reputation of Christ and to his church? Ahab's resisted God. He rejected God. He tried to replace God. And all along you read through these stories in Kings and Chronicles and you say, Ahaz, what else is it going to take for you to turn your whole heart and life back to the God who created you and made you the king in the first place? And so it's here this morning, brothers and sisters, that I want to turn us to Jesus. And I want to ask, what else is it going to take as his church, as his people, for us to give him our whole hearts again, to open up our eyes, to be people who have eyes to see and ears to hear, people whose hearts are not hardened, who aren't rejecting the ways of God, who aren't trying to replace him with things that cannot satisfy us. What is it going to take for us to stop all this nonsense, stop being silent in the midst of it, stop saying some of it's okay when we know it's not, and to stop majoring on the minors and getting so caught up in little things that are only a distraction and at some point they're going to pass away it's going to be over what is it going to take for us to turn our hearts back to christ and to say to him lord jesus you have my full commitment and you have my whole heart and i will not be like ahaz and so many others who just reject the savior that god has given Here's what Jesus said it takes. Matthew chapter 16. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good is it, therefore, if someone gains the whole world but forfeits their soul? What can anyone give in exchange for their soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in His Father's glory with His angels, and then He will reward each person according to what they've done. I love this comment on this text from John Owen, the old Puritan Christian from England. He wrote, When someone sets his or her affections on the cross and the love of Christ, he or she crucifies the world as a dead and undesirable thing. The baits of sin lose their attraction and disappear. Fill your affections with the love of Christ and you will find no room for sin. Where are your affections today? What part of your, your attitudes and your lifestyle right now needs to be crucified with Christ? Is your, is your soul on the line for some of the things that you are giving your whole life to right now, is it worth it? What can someone really exchange for their soul? Today, the, the call, the invitation for each of us as people, but also for, for, for us as a church, as a body, as a church family, is that in all we say and do, we would fill our affections with the love of Christ and believe that when we do that, when we fill our hearts, when we fill our worship, and our priorities with the love of Christ, there will be no room for sin. There will be no place for idols. There will be nothing left that cannot satisfy us because all we have is Christ.